We often imagine the Jewish family of past generations as a bastion of stability and affection in uncertain times. But the Cairo Gniza, a rich trove of documents discovered in the Ben Ezra synagogue in Old Cairo, reveals much fluctuation in families, wherein husbands were often away for long periods of time, some women married repeatedly, and polygamy was not uncommon. Of special interest are more than 200 letters written by women. What are these letters? Do they reflect the women's authentic voices? And what are they about? Hi, and welcome to Research Bites, the podcast of the Martin Buber Society of Fellows. In each episode, we feature innovative research in the humanities and social sciences by one of our fellows. Let's turn to Dr. Miriam Goldstein, who's interviewing Dr. Oded Zinger, a Gniza specialist who studies the social history of Jews in the medieval Middle East. I would like to start with a little snippet from a woman's letter to her brother that you shared with me. My dear brother, I was waiting the whole year for a letter to arrive from you so that I could know your situation. The mail carriers arrived and I did not see a letter from you. So I went out and made inquiries and they said to me that you are sick. I went out of my mind. I vowed that we would not eat during the day, change our clothes, nor enter the bathhouse, neither I nor my daughter, until a letter of yours arrived and we would know your situation. When it was the day of the ship's arrival, I went to the sea. I stood on the shore with my hand over my heart to hear news from you. People came down from the ships and informed us that you are well. I praised God and thanked him for your health and well-being. This is a very dramatic letter, and I can imagine how emotional it is in Arabic. What is it exactly? It is an 11th century letter from a Jewish woman in Tripoli in modern-day Libya to her brother, Yeshua ben Ismail al-Mahmouri, who was doing business in Egypt. The letter is written in Judeo-Arabic, that is, Arabic written in the Hebrew alphabet. How do we have this private family letter from almost a thousand years ago? This letter is part of what is called the Cairo Geniza. Geniza is a Jewish practice whereby written material bearing the name of God and sometimes simply anything in Hebrew letters is buried or put to rest in a grave or special chamber rather than destroyed or thrown away as garbage. In the last years of the 19th century, several European scholars, Solomon Schechter being the most famous among them, unearthed a vast collection of manuscript in the Ben Ezra synagogue in the older part of Cairo called Fustat. Documents were also unearthed in digs around the synagogue and in a nearby cemetery. Most of the documents are from the 11th, 12th, and early 13th centuries. The current estimate for this Geniza is close to 300,000 items, which contain some three quarters of a million separate pages. The Ben Ezra Geniza has more documentary material, that is, documents written for the present need, letters, legal documents, account, shopping list, wills, etc. So let me direct you to our topic, which is women's letters. Why are women's letters important? Out of all of the immense riches of the Geniza, why should we be interested in them? Well, what I call the documentary material, letters, legal documents, accounts, etc., do not only inform us about everyday life. They shed lights on part of medieval Jewish societies that usually remain hidden. Poor people, children, craftsmen, etc. In literary works, we usually hear only about the thin layer of learned men, rabbis, poets, courtiers, Women are arguably not only the most important marginal group, both in terms of numbers and in their role of society, but they are also the group we hear the least from directly. One of the fundamental features of medieval Jewish history is that we have almost no text written by women for over a thousand years. 
All we have is a lovely poem that was maybe written by the wife of a Spanish poet found in the Geniza and some Arabic poems attributed to the daughter of a Spanish courtier, Shmuel Hanagid. This absence is striking not only in itself, but also in comparison to both medieval Christianity and Islam, where one finds medieval women writers here and there. Then comes the Geniza and provides us with a great mass of women's letters in which we hear about these women's experiences in action. This is invaluable. Are women's letters a recent discovery? No. Shlomo Dovgoitan, the great scholar of the Geniza in the 20th century, was the first to study and write about women's letters. One of his discoveries, for example, was a letter written to Moses Maimonides, the great 12th century philosopher, from his sister. And this gives us a completely new angle to look on Maimonides. Goitan was followed by the late Joel Kramer, who had the bold idea to find and publish all women's letters in the Geniza. But he died last year, and the project was left incomplete. Already several years before his death, Kramer realized he would not be able to finish it, and he passed this huge project to René Levin Melamed, who is working diligently to make this wonderful letters accessible to the public. Before we talk about the content of the letters and what we can learn from them, can you give us an overview of this corpus? So the Geniza has never been fully catalogued or described, so it is impossible to give precise or definitive estimates. But my guess is that we are talking about over 200 letters written by women, a sizable amount. As is typical with the Geniza, most of the letters come from the 11th to the 13th centuries, but we also have later letters from the 15th and the 16th centuries. What is most striking for me is the linguistic variety of these letters. Most letters are in Judeo-Arabic, which is Arabic written in Hebrew script. But we also have Hebrew letters and letters in regular Arabic, that is, Arabic in Arabic script. In fact, we have the beginning of a woman's letter written in Aramaic on a papyrus from probably the 8th or the 19th century. In the Afghan Geniza, documents recently discovered in Afghanistan, we have the beginning of a woman's letter in Judeo-Persian, Persian written in Hebrew letters. Back in the regular Geniza, we also have letters from later centuries in Judeo-Spanish and Yiddish. The point to take from this large number of letters and from the broad variety of languages is that women's letters was a pervasive phenomenon, not some rare occurrence like poems written by women. Writing was pervasive in women's life and played an important role in their lives. So, Oded, women wrote these letters themselves? They knew how to write? No, that is not what I'm saying. I'm simply making the point that the size and variety of women's letters in terms of languages, geography, and dates show that writing and written material played an important role in women's lives. They were not divorced from the world of writing or texts, whether or not they knew how to read or write. But did they know how to read and write? And if they didn't, can we really take these as women's letters, as letters that reflect women's voices and women's concerns? In many ways, that is the million-dollar question. Whenever I give a talk about women's letters, I'm asked about it, and it is very hard to move past it. Whatever I can supply by way of answer is not a simple yes or no. First, I should make clear that so far no one has been able to prove that a specific letter was actually written down physically by a woman. Various scholars suggested that this letter may have been written by a woman because of a colloquial register or unprofessional hand. But there are a lot of problematic assumptions with such suggestions, and they are based on impressions which change from one scholar to another. Second, we have a variety of women's letters. The two major types are private letters, written usually to a family member, like the one you read, and more or less formal petitions, letter asking for charity or legal intervention, written to the communal leader of the community. Petitions are rather formulaic and use very standard terms, 
pretty much all women are poor, naked, hungry, sick, almost blind, and have no one who can help them except God and the addressee. So even if we suspect formal petitions as being rather removed from women's real voices, this still leaves us with family letters, which is fine by we. Finally, it is important to say that this is not just a women's issue. Many men also use scribes, whether because they were wealthy and could afford them, or because they did not know how to write well. So it is not just a gender issue, it is about the nature of writing, the social and cultural expectations about writing. You're exactly right. After all, many of these letters are dictations, and I know from my own work that in the medieval Islamic world, many learned works were actually dictated by the author to his students, and some works are students' notes during lectures that were later compiled and edited. Exactly. Dictating is writing. Part of the problem with answering this question has to do with our expectations. Since the silences of medieval women is so loud, and since the desire to recover hidden voices is so ingrained in academic way of thinking, we sometimes have this idea of finding the pure, unmediated, authentic voice. Women speak for themselves, as is the title of one important article. But of course, writing, like talking, is a form of communication which involves two or more people. People did not write to express themselves or pour themselves onto the page. That is a much later romantic idea. People wrote to create an effect upon the other person. So there is no unmediated, authentic voice. All writing takes into account the writer and the reader. In our case, we simply have a third party, the scribe. In fact, there is also a fourth party, because many letters were circulated around once they reached their destination. So these letters are crafted like intimate exchanges, but often they have a public face as well. Once we adjust our expectations, we can move forward. Also, the fact that people use formulas and structured speech does not mean it is not authentic. When we are speaking now, most of our conversation is scripted, but this does not mean that it is not authentic. When I encounter my grandmother, I first approach her and kiss her. The fact that this is a ritual and a standard form of behavior does not empty this gesture from its expression of love and respect, but actually gives it its meaning. That issue of formulas in everyday life, as you mentioned, and also in letters, is really fascinating. I'm very interested in formulas, specifically in prefaces, in written compositions, in works written by scholars during this period in Arabic. It's a fascinating question. To what extent do we take the author's statements at face value, or do we chalk them up to the use of set formulas that may or may not reflect reality? Well, another way to move forward, and this was suggested to me by Moshe Rosman, the scholar of Hasidism, it is to recognize that authorship is socially constructed. In other words, the question is not who put read to paper, but whether women and society at large in the 11th and 12th century considered these letters as their writings. That is enough. I love that idea. Did they? For the most part, yes, for sure. We find in letters sentences like, I wrote you two letters with so-and-so. And this so-and-so is the scribe, because we recognize his handwriting. So they refer to the letters as theirs, and to their dictating as writing. Indeed, in one letter, a woman writes that she's writing letter after letter, even though she's not receiving an answer, because she enjoys writing, that is dictating, letters to the recipient, because it is like speaking to him directly. This is, of course, a common expression with roots going back to the classical world. But that is even better, because it tells us about a broad culture conception that dictating is like speaking to a person. Writing letters is like speaking to him. That is fascinating. So one thing I'm curious about, is it just us asking about this distinction? Or do we find clues that the medieval community that we're reading about and talking about was actually thinking about who was doing the writing and how they were doing it? It is mostly a problem we raise due to our modern concerns. 
but in some very interesting moments it is also raised in the sources. One example is a legal case in which an anonymous complaint was thrown into the house of a communal functionary. The complaint was about a man who made repeated visits to the house of a married woman, a scandal. The court began a double inquiry, both about the relationship between the married woman and her visitor and about who wrote the complaint. The woman claimed that these men's visits were not solicited by her and that she in fact detested his visits. When asked whether she knew who wrote the complaint, she answered that she does know who wrote it and that she was behind its writing, but the person who wrote it down added and subtracted from what she said. So we have here a direct testimony about how such letters were composed and that scribes could add and subtract from what was dictated. Another example is found in a letter of a merchant in India writing to his wife who lived in Cairo. He had been staying in India for many years and he just received a letter from his wife asking him to divorce her by sending her a get, the Jewish bill of divorce. He says in the letter that he understands as the wait has indeed been long and he is willing to divorce her. Yet he also was told by the person carrying the letter that she came to his house and asked him to give her the letters because they were written by her father without her consent. Some details remain unclear, but it is certainly suggests that some suspicion about women speaking for themselves is warranted. Very interesting and really reflective of the history of the period as well. You know, another point that I find fascinating is when these letters reflect on questions of Arabic script versus Hebrew script. And the question about to what extent and who was able to read Arabic script, and oftentimes letters are the medium that reveal more on this topic. You yourself have brought a number of these things to my attention, and there are some articles on this topic. In any case, as you predicted, we got a little bit stuck on the question of women's voices. Now that we've put it to rest, what do we find in these letters? We find life. Life with all its pains and joys. Women write about their marriage problems sometimes in angry letters to their husbands or in resentful letters to their relatives. Women write about their children, how they behave or misbehave, how they play, whether they are happy in their recent marriages. They write about the death of loved ones and about new births. Economic hardship receives a center stage. Many people were poor or lived dangerously close to poverty. Family news was a favorite topic as well. Basically, I have the wonderful job of reading a thousand-year-old gossip. Gossip, I agree. It is thousand-year-old gossip, and it's fascinating. It's also really private things, and in some cases, really painful things. Did women not feel hesitant to reveal these kinds of things to a scribe? We do not know what they chose not to say. In any case, often the scribes were intimate male relatives. But you're right. There are topics that are not written about, like sex or desire. Sometimes we have a letter that was left incomplete because the writer realized that what she dictated was too much. Speaking in a general sense, it's really reassuring to know that people in the past were like us in some ways. But I want to know what surprises you in these letters. How are these letters different from the way that we would imagine the past? One thing that comes across from these letters is how cosmopolitan was this Jewish society. When people live and die in the same place, there is no need to write letters. The fact that we have so many letters, and of course it is only a drop in the ocean of what was actually written, is because men traveled and often left their wives, sisters, mothers, daughters behind. Jewish men traveled from Egypt to Spain and India and everywhere in between. Some men were gone for trade, study or pilgrimage, but there were also those who ran away and disappeared because they could not stand their lives or they could not maintain their families. We sometimes have this idea about the Jewish family as a bastion of stability and affection, albeit at times somewhat suffocating, which modernity has fractured. 
But this traditional family did not exist, at least not in the 11th and 12th century Mediterranean. Family life was much more unstable and turbulent. Divorce rates were high, husband's absentism was pervasive, polygamy was a very real option, not to mention that quite a number of Jewish husbands were sexually involved with their domestic slaves, which is forbidden in Jewish law but accepted in Islamic law. This is hardly traditional family values that people today imagine the past and want to go back to. This is very surprising material. So how did women cope with this unstable reality? Here, as well, the letters are helpful. Because when your luck was down, you reached out for help, whether to relatives or to the community. One of the things I study is how women express obligation in letters. How do they try to convince the other party to help them? What buttons they press? You know, resources are always limited and help is never guaranteed, so you really needed to get people to help you. And what did you find? One thing I'm interested about is oaths expressed in letters. Usually they take the form of, in Arabic, of bihak el something, meaning by the truth of. So we have by the truth of God or by the truth of my religion, which are rather short, but we also have lengthier oaths like by the explicit name of God and by the Ten Commandments that God the Exalted revealed through our Lord Moses, peace be upon him. These expressions are meant to give weight to whatever it is you're writing, and they are common even in modern Arabic speech. Beyond these, let's call them religious oaths, you know, by God, I was intrigued by what I termed relationship oaths, oaths that stress the connection between parties. For example, a letter informs the recipient that his mother is asking about him and tells him, by your upbringing, by your upbringing, my son, do not let me die while angry at you. The mother wanted her son to come back home and use the obligation created by the care she has invested in his upbringing in the past to pressure him to return today. I'm especially interested in oaths that invoke material substance that forms the medium that connects people. So a woman married to her cousin, who was kicked out of her house by her mother-in-law, wrote to another cousin saying, Protect me for the blood and milk that is between us. Apparently the two were breastfed by the same woman, and this was considered as creating a bond of obligation between them. A mother writing to her absent son adjures him not to neglect his son. By God and by the breast that nursed you, do not forget your child, Suleiman. So the care that she has given him is supposed to obligate her son to take care of his own child. A refugee from Jerusalem that ended up in Tripoli, now in modern-day Lebanon, writes to her in-laws in Fustat about her difficult situation and commands them, Do not neglect me. Uphold the ties of family and blood. So blood and milk are substances that circulate between relatives and create obligations to help. What about letters in a broader sense? Do these kinds of oaths also appear in men's letters? This is where it gets interesting. They do appear in men's letters. I mean oaths that invoke upbringing and blood, not milk and breasts, of course. But in addition to the oaths women make, men also express oaths based on what I call social substances consumed in a social setting, like bread, salt, and wine. Furthermore, they invoke additional social relationships based on friendship and love. So one man writes to another, By these lines, by the love between us, by the bread and cup we ate and drank together, do not omit me from your prayers. In other words, do not forget me. A merchant concludes a letter to a junior associate, Now, my brother, by God, remember our friendship, upbringing, and the bread and salt we ate together. Oaths based on love are quite common between men, but I never encountered them in women's letters. 
It is also common not to use Arabic words for love, but to elevate love and perhaps clarify that it's pure love rather than physical love by using the Hebrew word ahava. So they write bihakel ahava or bihakel ahava kduma, mixing Arabic and Hebrew. The way women are limited to kinship oaths and men also make social oaths reflect, I think, that women's social world was predominantly her family, while men had broader social world beyond the family. It also reflects the centrality of social belonging to what it meant to be a Jewish man in medieval Egypt, but that is another story. This is an example of what can be done with such letters. That's a really interesting difference between women's letters and men's letters. But you would have to read a whole lot of letters to notice that kind of difference. I'm also assuming there are a lot more letters to and from men. What are some other differences that you can tell us about? We do have many thousands of men's letters, and as I said, only about 200 women's letters. Men letters also come in more types. Women letters usually fall under either formal petitions or family letters. While men write petitions, family letters, commercial letters, communal letters, which are letters between communal officials, business memos, and all sorts of other types of letters. Since women letters often deal with family matters, they often dedicate more space to sending greetings to one another. A further difference is that men often add the formula, whatever need you have, honor me by letting me fulfill it. This is rarely encountered in women's letters, and this reflects the fact that women were usually on the receiving end of support rather than on the giving end. This phrase reflects the reciprocal relations that men were engaged in. Women were not involved in the same kind of reciprocity. What else is specific to women's letters? Do women reflect on their predicament as women, and do they tell us something about what medieval women 1,000 years ago were thinking about womanhood? Well, I don't know what they were thinking, But occasionally, especially in formal petitions, women sometimes use their difficulties as women to enlist sympathy. So one widow writes, My lord knows what hardship men endure these days. They cannot make ends meet. How then can those behind the veil who do not know their right from their left? The widow of a well-known judge wrote in Hebrew, I write to your honor due to the pressing times and their difficulties, even on the rich who know well in their wisdom how to manage their wealth so that it will not decrease and dwindle. How much more difficult are these times on she who is hidden in the belly of the earth and is dependent on all. Another good example is of a Jewish woman abandoned by her husband who writes to the Jewish judges, My masters are aware of the current situation and how difficult it has been for those with means, all the more so for the weak and poor. I am a woman with poor sight. I cannot distinguish night from day and cannot find my way when walking. My husband abandoned me, fled to Alexandria, and left me a widow during his lifetime, an aguna. In my charge is an infant girl three years old. We are starving, naked, and lacking strength. These statements are absolutely shocking. Well, they're supposed to be. Many poor people wrote petitions asking for help. And you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. In order to be heard, you needed not only to be needy, you needed a good story. And literary flair went a long way. It might be just what you needed to get the attention of the benefactor. So he will remember your plight over somebody else. That sounds really logical. But there's also a really interesting play here between women's helplessness and their power. The women's success depends on portraying themselves as helpless, but they're not helpless if they can pay for, dictate, really author this kind of petition. I do always wonder about the women who say they have no one to help them and are starving, but they have someone to write their petitions. 
We also have women writing that they are lonely and have no one to help them, and then in the end of the letter they pass greetings from various people. So this performance of weakness is very deliberate. You humble yourself, and in so doing you pressure those on top to perform the duty required from them for being on top. Noblesse oblige. Yes, but here it is in the form of a demand. Well, we're nearing the end, and we shouldn't end on a negative note. We've also been talking about specific formulas, this or that sentence, and I think it would be worthwhile to finish with one complete letter. So, Oded, what is your favorite women's letter? Well, honestly, my favorite letter changes every other day. But among my favorites is a letter that a woman in Damascus wrote to her niece in Cairo. It is pretty clear that this niece was married to the late son of the writer. So she was not just an aunt, but she was also a mother-in-law. Except that now the son or the husband died. The writer in Damascus also had a daughter who passed away. So now she was without children. And what is important to realize is how absolutely vital it was for an aging woman to have a family member to take care of her. Wealth vanishes. High status does not feed you or provides you company. Women had to have a younger family member to take care of them. Men, we must remember, could always marry a younger bride. But this was much more difficult for an older woman. So this aunt wanted her niece, formerly her daughter-in-law, to leave Cairo and join her in Damascus. That is a lot to ask for. The family relationship itself was not enough. After all, in the end of the letter, we learned that the addressee's mother is with her in Cairo. Is she supposed to prefer her aunt over her own mother? Because family ties are not enough, the letter employs a wonderful mix of emotional pleading as well as arguments about mutual benefits. Basically, that the young widow would find a nice Jewish boy to marry in Damascus. It is a beautiful letter, but it is also important to notice the different strategies pursued by the expressions of the emotions. How about I read it? Be my guest. You can read it in Arabic. That I would love to do. Here goes. وصل كتابك يا بنتي وعزل خلق عندي You know, on second thought, let's switch to English. Your letter arrived, my daughter, and dearest to me of all people. May God reunite me with you soon. You know how much I love you and your place in my heart. I did not cut off my letters to you except that God, the exalted, tested me with the death of my son, Abu al-Khair. May he rest in peace. Even with my great sorrow and faltering speech, your place in my heart is still great. Now, listen to what I am telling you and advising you. Rise and get up, and God will grant you success. For no relative remains for me but you, and you are in the place of a son. So do not linger, for I know not when my appointed time will come. If you arrive, if God wills it, my heart will be at rest and I will be pleased. I will find consolation in seeing you, and I will be fortified with your being with me. Regarding your saying in your letter, consider me as the same age of your daughter. Know that in my heart, you are in her place, and like her when she was alive, and even dearer than her. I am awaiting your arrival that will heal my longing for you. I wanted to send you something which would assist you on the road, but no trustworthy man was around. Do not linger. Sell everything you have, what is below you and what is above you. Take loans and leave. I will pay these debts for you. Know that Damascus is famed among all other cities for its great excellence and for having good and religious Jews. If you come, you will be happy. You will obtain what you want, and I will obtain through you what I want. Even less than these words ought to convince those of sound mind, especially someone as smart as you. That which is hidden in my heart is more and more than what I told you. 
May God give me what I hope for you and make you the happiest of girls, support you and support us in his mercy. I send greetings of peace to you and to your mother, peace. Now that is quite a letter. It's a thousand years ago and it's in Damascus and she sounds like a Jewish mother. Mother Mother-in-law. You have been listening to Research Bites, the podcast of the Martin Buber Society of Fellows in the Humanities and Social Sciences. In this podcast, we hope to offer a taste or a bite of the research taking place in our society and the kind of conversations taking place in its offices, hallways, and indeed the kitchen. Additional episodes discuss matters such as religious mobility and identity among Christians in Kenya, and the changes in the way some rare languages in Northeast India express both you and me. Our thanks to Dr. Avigail Menkin-Bamberger, who helped produce this episode, Omri Bendor is our series producer, and Ori Dror is our sound recorder and editor. The Buber Society is a German-Israeli collaboration housed at the Hebrew University and funded by the German Federal Ministry of Education and Research. For more information about the Martin Buber Society of Fellows, about this episode, and about additional episodes, please visit our website, buberfellows.huji.ac.il. That's buberfellows.huji.ac.il.